Welcome to Bovine Banter with the Penn State Extension Dairy Team. I'm Ginger Fenton, and I'm a dairy educator based in Mercer County, Pennsylvania. And I'm Adrian Bergen. I am an extension veterinarian and assistant clinical professor within the Department of Veterinary and Biomedical Sciences at Penn State University. Joining us today are Dr. Greg Roth, Emeritus Professor of Agronomy from Penn State University, and Del Voigt, who is an extension educator on the field and forage crops team based in Lebanon County, Pennsylvania. We will be discussing considerations and practices for raising and feeding small grain forages on a dairy farm. Thanks for being with us today, Dr. Roth and Del. Could you please introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about your work with Penn State Extension and the field and forage crops team? Dr. Roth, would you like to start? Sure. Thanks for having me on, Ginger. I was a uh, extension specialist in the agronomy area, focusing on uh, grain crops, and I was able to work for about 30 years on uh, different aspects of grain crops with some emphasis on uh, forage quality for uh, the dairy on corn silage and also the small grain crops that we're going to talk about today. I'm Del Voigt. I'm based in Lebanon County. And um, I basically, my career, just working with the local farmers, we have about 350 dairy farms in the area. And so forages are big. And so naturally, as a county agent here, um, I had to basically get trained up on these forages through Greg. And over time, I've seen our alfalfa acres kind of switch over from alfalfa back to the uh, small grain silage. So um, hopefully we can all learn today throughout it. And thanks for having me on, Ginger. All right. Let's start with with a basic question for our listeners. So we are all on the same page. Can you review what type of small grain forages might be raised in Pennsylvania and how and why they might be used on a dairy farm? Yeah, so in most of the of I've been exposed to, there's mostly your small grains. So you, those would include barley, wheat, oats, triticale, uh, rye is probably the biggest one. Their number one function is to provide additional forage. And that that's pretty much why they do it. But it does also, we have some marginal soils that can get droughted. So it offers a a crop that you're sure to get in the spring with spring rains. And Greg has proved that over his career and some of his studies as well with some of the small grains and taking advantage of that early, the early spring rains and getting a forage out of it. And recently it's been, um, they can take the silage off and get this planted immediately and utilize some of the residual nitrogen and also add more manure to the mix as a nutrient management type of situation as well. But number one thing would be having forages, primarily, you know, for as a as a protein source, but but pretty much as a straight up forage for additional needs there. And it takes the pressure off of a, a drought situation later in the summer. Let's talk a little bit about the management of each for high yields and quality. Let's start with the winter grains like rye and triticale. What are some of the key fundamentals in growing this crop? Some of the key factors that we need to think about for the winter winter grains like rye and triticale are that, first of all, we want to start with good seed. And that would mean that it has a good germination. Hopefully has we know something about the genetics of it. And then we want to try to plant it early in the fall. That's usually going to be 10 to 14 days before we would typically uh, seed wheat. Um, that might be in, uh, oftentimes it would be early September to uh, uh, mid-September. 
Uh, I have seen situations where folks seed too early and then you get lush uh, growth in the fall in some of our southern counties, especially if the fields have been manured and then the crop doesn't overseed overwinter so well. So timely seeding helps promote tiller growth. And then a, a good seeding rate generally of 100 to 150 pounds of seed per acre. And uh, typically then we, we'd follow that with a fall manure application. Uh, it's a great spot to use some. And, uh, and then uh, follow maybe in the spring with a, uh, a little additional N or maybe a second manure application in early spring. I'm not a real big fan of the second manure application. I think a lot of producers opt for the, the nitrogen and save the second manure for the subsequent corn crop. And in some cases, it might be, you know, it might be important to include some uh, sulfur in, in with the nitrogen as that helps to improve the protein of the uh, final crop. So um, it's, they're fairly basic to grow, but uh, like a, a, with a lot of crops, paying attention to these details will make sure we get a, a good stand in the fall, good fall development, a dense uh, crop, and then high protein crop uh, to harvest in the spring. All right. So on those lines, how much nitrogen do you apply in the spring in addition to the fall or winter manure? I know that you say that you're not a fan of this, but how much will be the nitrogen applied in this second manure application? When it comes to nitrogen, that's something that is farm specific and depends on the amount of manure you've put on in the history of those fields and how much you put on. Uh, generally speaking, the the crop needs oh probably 50 pounds per ton of dry matter. That's you know about a pound of bushel, 140 to 150 pound, and that would be bare soil. You have no history of nitrogen, no legume in rotation, those kind of things. But um, so it can get a little complicated. And when I work with growers, I have a little cheat sheet that I go through, and it kind of helps narrow it down a bit. I've been playing around with the spad meter a little bit too to kind of dial that in on some of the rye. But in general, I would say a common practice would be that, uh, like Greg said, they get that full nitrogen, it gets captured by it. Now I do have some farms that plant the winter grains with an annual grain like oats, and then they chop that in the fall and then they'll chop it again in the spring. Um, but that is generally not too many. I have a grower that does 900 acres like that. But when it comes down to the total nitrogen demand uh, in the spring, generally speaking on most of our farms, it's about 50 to 70 pounds of nitrogen top dressed in the spring. And from a sulfur perspective, this become, again, it comes, depends on your manure. Dairy manure, you know, can have about eight pounds of sulfur with a typical 6,000 gallons application. That can vary widely. So testing your manure is a good beginning point for sulfur. Uh, the crop itself removes about 20 pounds, roughly of small grains, somewhere between 10 and 20. So, you know, those, a lot of it can be met through the manure. You know, that's something you can test for and apply accordingly. So nitrogen's there. What I see, the biggest mistake on fertility is they forget that it's a huge consumer of potassium and 160 pounds of K removal on a typical yield. And so what I generally see on these farms is we end up planting corn after it, and then we have corn that turns yellow with potassium deficiency, or they plant soybeans, 
and that becomes deficient. So that that's a real consideration that growers need to pay attention for. And I, I've seen more potassium deficiency this year than I normally do because the potassium price is so high. So every farm's going to be different. I don't think you can pigeonhole one application rate. I think it's going to go by what else you do. Some of my farmers also, in addition to the dairy, will put poultry manure on. And then that's a big question mark of whether that becomes mineralized enough in the spring. And it's almost like a light switch. I was with a grower this spring that had, he put four ton of uh, chicken manure on and his uh, crop was yellow. And boy, it was like, well, do we put more on? What do we do? Boy, in a week's time, we got an inch of rain and it was like a shot in the arm, bam, green as could be. So you just have to watch it. And that's something that you have to thread a needle on. I just might add that Dell, that if you see a lot of lodging, I think you'll agree that that's an indication you've kind of gone overboard for that year. And then in subsequent years, you're going to back off from that program a little bit. At the same token, if your protein levels are low, that's an indication that uh, maybe you want to bump up that nitrogen. Those are two indicators you can use without a whole lot of testing apparatus. One thing I will add too here um, while we're on the nitrogen is manure application. I I remember getting some pictures of a dairy farmer that was spreading. I think he was on his 90th, 90th load of manure and he had streaks. He just basically wanted to get it done. And if you're going to spread manure, spread it evenly. Uh, there's a lot of devices. We can inject manure now. There's that capability that we can get injected and you can broadcast or some different types of equipment. If it's compost, there's some BBI spreaders that a wonderful job of getting it out and even. I would say, take your time. I know it gets, it takes a long time to, to empty these pits, but at the end of the day, getting it even is kind of critical for this crop. Good advice from both of you. Thank you. So when is the best time to harvest for a high quality dairy feed and how do you identify this stage? I think where a lot of people in, in the dairy industry are moving for the best quality and the best fiber digestibility is kind of what we call the flag leaf stage. And that's where the last leaf of the uh, plant has emerged from the boot. The head, the head hasn't uh, come up to, uh, to that area yet and hasn't swelled up at the top of the plant. And uh, that's what we call growth stage nine uh, or the flag leaf stage. And this is going to be probably well before any grass or alfalfa fields in the area would be harvested. It's going to be the first thing that gets harvested uh, in the area. And again, in many of our areas, folks are doing all this already. You could, if you're not interested in quality uh, on these crops, you can definitely delay harvest and end up getting a lot higher yields. But uh, uh, one of the key advantages of these uh, small grain silages is their great fiber digestibility. And growers have sort of learned to uh, sacrifice a bunch of yield. And then also uh, harvesting early gives you a earlier window to, to plant your corn crop, which is uh, particularly critical as we get in the central and northern parts of the state. So uh, a lot of folks are targeting for high quality dairy feed, that flag leaf stage at, uh, at growth stage nine now. So speaking of harvesting, what would be the moisture uh, content benchmarks that uh, farmers should shoot for? 
So as an ensiled forage, you know, 65, 70% moisture would be the ideal. That's something that also is a little bit of a dance. Every year you get different uh, humidities and temperatures that affect it after cut, you know, and if you want to do the, you know, cut it in the morning and try to harvest in the evening and uh, that all is weather dependent, but somewhere between 60 and 70 would probably be ideal. And that's what I see mostly here. Uh, the other thing that can affect that too is like Greg said, at boot stage, you get a lot, lot more lush crop there and some growers will wait till those heads are out just because it's, it's there. Uh, it tends to get a little bit more straw, but then you, that's basically your difference in their feed quality. But what I noticed the progressive farmers in my area do is they, when it gets close to boot, they're looking at the weather. You know, they're going to look at that weather and say, okay, I've got a, I've got a good opening here. I'm maybe just coming into boot stage. I might be a little on the early side. And then they pull the trigger. Cause if you got seven, 800 acres of rileage to get off, you, you can't mess around too much. Um, but when you, there's a tonnage trade-off. So if you're, if you're really wet during that early phase, but there's a, a, a few days of opening and it's going to be right at boot with early heading, then I see some growers say, you know what, then we'll get everything fired up to go at that stage. So we might be a little unique because we have custom work here with, with the ability to move things in really quickly and get it packed. And that's where some of them tell me they like the wetter moisture because it packs better. Anyway, that, that would be my two cents on the moisture side. I think we all know that time is a scarce commodity on a dairy farm. Um, so what are some strategies to manage the logistics and spread harvest if you need to do that? I find this pretty fascinating what some farmers do. And I think logistics is a, a real key thing at being successful. One thing that, and it's, this vary, I also the logistics and the planning actually vary depending on where you're at in the state. Like Dell said, in his area, farms have great access to custom operators and don't have some of the issues with the uh, delayed planning and so forth that we have in the central and northern parts of the state. But um, some things that you could do, you could plant some rye and, and then some triticale. And then depending on your harvest window in the spring, if the weather's not cooperating when the rye gets ready, then you could focus on harvesting the triticale and leave the rye to be a, a cover crop, let's say. Or you could plant plan on harvesting the rye as, as it's usually a, a week or so earlier. You could plan on uh, jumping on, on some of that rye if you need it, uh, uh, maybe on the early side, if things are, if things are not looking to uh, cooperate. Farms also vary in the percentage of their cover crop acres of small grains that they're going to harvest. Some that really need the, really need the uh, acres, they're going to uh, harvest everything. Others are going to harvest only a portion and they'll, they'll have to make decisions between uh, what we're going to use for cover crop and what we're going to be harvesting for silage. And again, having some diversity in the crop might be useful to help them uh, pick and choose and get that optimum feed quality that they're striving for. So a number of things that could be done uh, with the maturity of the two crops to make it work, I guess. I believe that Ryan Tritical might be some of the most popular small grains using dairy farms. So what are some of the main key differences between these two and their management? 
Well, I think that one of the big differences, at least in my area, is you can either raise your own rye, combine it, get it clean, get a germ test and seed it. Or there's a lot of folks in my area that will raise a bunch of rye and combine it and it's about $15, $18 a bushel. Uh, But the the triticale, of course, you're purchasing certified seeds. So you have a cost difference between those two. Um, And you as a grower have to weigh that that out. The seeding rates are different as Greg went through. Um, So that's definitely different. Most of our growers do use it as a uh, cover crop. So it's sort of a utility crop as far as covering all the acres. The mistake that I see a lot of times is they use a seeding rate as a cover crop and then they try to pick a field in the spring that they're going to chop. Where I, I think that they should probably say, you know what, this is going to be my forage area. So I'm going to seed it at a higher rate and manage it accordingly versus managing just as a cover crop. So those are some key things that a grower has to think about what they're doing there. And then as Greg related, you have the maturity differences. So it gives you a little bit of another hedge against the weather as far as uh, during that time. I might add, Del, typically if growers are buying more expensive triticale seed, those fields are going to be dedicated to forage production. And the rye fields are going to be whether they need it or not, you know, on some farms at least. Continuing to talk about seeds, um, are there any new developments in genetics for rye and triticale? This is uh, another thing that's exciting about this whole area is that uh, there's been continued active breeding programs in triticale, and uh, and folks are trying to develop new lines that are, they're, you know, higher yielding and have better fiber digestibility. I saw one interesting seed company tactic of ha- mixing an early and a little bit of an early triticale in with uh, a full season triticale. And that way, when growers see about 10% of the crop with the heads popping up, they'll know that the uh, uh, rest of it is just about at the uh, flag leaf stage. So that, that's kind of a cool indicator thing. In rye, what goes against our, our grain of thinking in uh, agronomy is that a lot of these varieties that we use in rye are, are old genetics, maybe 20 or 30 years old. And that's certainly not, we wouldn't do something like that in raising corn, but um, we do that in rye. What we're seeing a little bit now is some movement uh, towards more premium rye varieties. And uh, one of the most premium is something called hybrid rye. And it's been uh, in our Penn State trials, it's been uh, doing quite well compared to the uh, VNS varieties. They're often but they're often about a week later. So they're almost kind of like a triticale. Now the, the guys that run that program, they're telling me they're starting to see some hybrid rise that are earlier maturity that might be high yielding and similar maturity to our early rise. So I think there's, I think uh, there's some cool things happening. I think, uh, uh, I think we'll probably continue to see some work in this area. One thing that would be kind of cool, I think, is that if we could develop small grain varieties that held their fiber digestibility longer in the spring so that we could get the high yield and high quality uh, and the quality wouldn't go downhill so fast. So uh, maybe breeders will be able to work on that with some of these new technologies and uh, we'll see some bigger uh, changes in the future. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Greg Broth and Del Boyd. 
This concludes the first part of the Small Grain Forage podcast. If you have any further questions regarding this topic, you can email me at gdc3 at psu.edu or Dr. Berrigan at axb779 at psu.edu. And don't forget to tune in next week to listen to the second part of this exciting topic with our guests. 